0: Today, we're going to begin a three-part series designed to make you uncomfortable and hopefully better. It's entitled Talking Points, The Perfect Blend of Politics and Religion. Now, we'll see how perfect it is. I think you get to decide at the end of this how perfect that is. I found it very difficult to stay away from the topic of religion in church, but I found it very easy to stay away from the topic of politics in church. But whenever something Jesus says specifically intersects with something that we're wrestling with in our culture or wrestling with at a specific time like this in the life of our nation, I get to talk about it. And to be honest, I actually look forward to talking about it because the words of Jesus are so extraordinarily relevant with everything that's happening in our nation right now. The division in the church created by our current political context and climate intersects directly with something that Jesus taught. So we're going to take a look at it together. Now, if your experience is anything like mine, it's been exceptionally difficult over the last uh, few years to avoid the heated discussion of politics. Since since about right after the election in 2016, our nation has been divided more than ever over our politics. And and for some of you, the last few years have been scary. If you're a Republican, you're going to say, obviously, this is a little bit uncomfortable, so let's just kind of dive in and make it uncomfortable for everyone. You're going to say, you're scared of what? We won. You're scared of what? Now, if you're a Democrat... Uh, if Democrats had won, rather, you wouldn't say something like, "Well, that's something we really need to be scared to be afraid of." If you're a Republican, that's what you're kind of thinking, right? Because nothing divides like politics. Because nothing divides like fear. And as you know, because you've been a victim of this, or maybe you've been part of this, and you can raise a lot of, uh, you can raise a lot of money peddling fear. You can't raise a lot of money not peddling fear, right? The, the Republicans are going to take away our opportunity to vote. The Democrats are going to take away our guns, you know, for $25 or $50. Or if you just send a check in for 100 If the president is reelected, it's going to be the end of the world. If a socialist Democrat is elected, it's the end of the world. But for $25, $50, $100, bucks, you peddle enough fear, you could raise a lot of money. I'm not trying to give you any ideas. I'm just telling you how it works. But here's the question. What exactly, just within the context of the United States, what exactly do we fear? I'll tell you what we fear because I know the answer. It's true for all of us. At the macro level, we all kind of fear the same thing, and we've been experiencing it over the last few months. Some of you have been experiencing it for years, and it's simply this. We fear loss. We fear something is going to be taken away from us. We fear loss. We fear loss of control, loss of opportunity, the loss of the future of our children, the loss of our culture, the loss of our freedom, the loss of progress, because we have made some. White people, we fear what might happen. Brown and black people fear what has already happened. For them, it's not theory. For them, and maybe for you perhaps, it's history. And it wasn't that long ago. So there's fear for all of us, and it's the fear of the unknown. You can't raise very much money if you don't peddle in fear. And so we're in this culture, we're in this season and in the life of our nation where everybody's peddling in fear. And if we're not careful, we will be victims of that. And not only will we be victims, we'll be divided. We have an unprecedented opportunity to model for our community and for our nation what it looks like to disagree politically, because we are going to disagree politically, and love unconditionally. Now, here's what I want us to do. I want us to really kind of dig down deep and maybe face some things we've never faced before. They're gonna be a little bit scary, maybe a little bit terrifying for you. I'm not gonna ask you to change political parties. I just want you to think a little bit differently as a Christian. And the question I wanna ask you is this. Do you wanna do this? Do you think you can do this? To which some of you might say on the surface, oh yeah, I can do that. I do that all the time. But let's dig deep. I don't mean tolerate people from different parties. I I don't mean, uh, you know, from different persuasions or those kinds of things that, you know, people ride on the fringes and, you know, they're they're kind of super extreme. I'm not talking about just tolerate people with an eye roll. Let me ask the question a different way for you. It's a little bit more pointed. Are you willing to evaluate or maybe reevaluate your politics through the filter of our historical collective Christian faith rather than create a version of faith that supports your politics, which is what most Christians do? And as we're going to talk about this over the next uh, few weeks, everybody wants a piece of Jesus. In the United States, Jesus is a part of every political party. You know, he's in agreement. He's in lockstep with you. Your Christian faith, it it just kind of works out that way that Jesus is part of your party. The real issue is, are you willing and am I willing to put our political filter behind instead of in front of our faith filter? Are we willing to evaluate and reevaluate our politics in light of what Jesus taught? Or or let let me say it this way. Are you willing to follow Jesus when following Jesus creates space between your political party, your party's platform, your party's uh, political candidate, and your faith? I'm just telling you, most Christians are not able to do that, especially in the climate that we're in now and in the months that we have ahead of us, because it's so easy to be divided and it's so easy to rush to the corner and it's so easy to just assume that God and Jesus are in lockstep with us. Now, this is what's so amazing, and this is why I have to talk about this. Apparently, Jesus saw this coming, not the election, the division. In fact, this is extraordinary. After Jesus had his final Passover meal with his disciples, he prays a prayer. And the gospel writer, John, actually records this prayer for us. Sometimes it's called the high priestly prayer. But in this prayer, he says two interesting things. Number one, he prays for us. We're going to look at that in just a minute. But number two, he has a prayer request. Now imagine sitting in a circle with Jesus and saying, anybody have a prayer request? And Jesus says, yeah, I do. It's like, you, really? Now, wouldn't you like to know what Jesus prayed for when Jesus prayed? We know what we pray for, right? Thank you for this day. Get us to school, help us, you know, help our kids, all this stuff. What did Jesus pray for? And so here he is. This is so cool. He's kind of at the end. In a few hours, they're going to arrest him and try him and crucify him. Everything's going to move real quickly from this point on. So he's praying here at the end, and he asked something of his heavenly father. And what he asked of his heavenly father has everything to do in the world with with you and with me, with people who consider themselves Jesus followers. This is so remarkable. He prays this, Father, the hour has come. Here we are, three and a half years of walking around with these guys, trying to explain what you're like and to explain what the kingdom of God looks like. But here we are at the end. The hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. In other words, he's saying, light me up in such a way that people recognize who I am, that your son may light up you so that people will recognize who you are and that we're connected. And the interesting thing is that this is the final hour of Jesus' life. He's about to be crucified. This is what he's referring to, that in this, this horrific moment, Jesus and God would be the most glorified. We would be the most horrified, but God would be glorified. And Jesus is like, oh, okay, the hour has come. But before all these events kick off, God, there's something I've got to ask you to do. I will remain in the world no longer, but they, these disciples, they are still in the world. God, I'm coming to you. I'm leaving them. But what comes next is amazing. And I think what comes next, most Christians don't know. Here's Jesus' prayer request to the Father at the very end of his life. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me. So that, and this is kind of the purpose of the protection. Here's specifically how I want you to protect them. And what's interesting is he's not talking about physical protection. He's already given them some bad news, right? Hey, guys, here's your future. Here's what it's going to look like. You're going to be arrested and flogged and beaten. Some of you are even going to be killed. That's what your future is. And they're thinking, hey, Jesus, great. Why did not you lead with that? And he says, I know I kind of held that from you because if I led with that, you probably wouldn't have followed me. But, but here you are. Here's what your future is. You're already in. He's not praying for their physical protection. He's praying for something he thinks is more important than their physical protection. This is his one prayer request. Here is what he wanted protected more than anything else. That they may be one as we are one. At the very end, the thing Jesus was most concerned about was their unity and their oneness. Because here's what he knew, and here's what what he's going to say in the next few verses. He knew that as long as they were in lockstep together and in lockstep with his heavenly father, the world would change. But if they ever got divided and splintered, things would stall. In verse 20, he prays for you and he prays for me. It's quite amazing. He says, my prayer is not just for them alone, not just for these 12 guys. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Or in other words, the next generation of Christians and the next generation of Christians and the next generation of Christians leading all the way up to us. And what do you think he prays for us? The answer is really not what we pray for us. In fact, here's something that's actually quite sad and it's really convicting to me. My hunch is virtually none of us who consider ourselves followers of Jesus have ever asked God for what Jesus asked God for. Virtually none of us have ever prayed the prayer that Jesus prayed, even though he modeled it and it was clearly so dear to him that at the end, it was the thing he prayed for, which may be the problem because as we're gonna discover, maybe if the church, maybe if people like me have been begging God for this, leading towards this, pleading toward this, the world would be a different and a better place. My prayer, Father, is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them, in the first century, that meant Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free man, everybody. In the 21st century, it means Republicans and Democrats, the privileged and not so privileged, the independent, the indecisive, the libertarians, the librarians, the black, the brown, the white and beige, privileged, married, single. In other words, all of us. I pray that all of them in the vast array of people with different experiences, I pray that somehow all of them, this is amazing, may be one, which kind of sounds impossible. But Jesus was convinced, as impossible as that may sound, it was mission critical, which meant even though it seemed impossible, it was absolutely imperative. This was not an add-on. This was not a, wouldn't it be nice, you know, if we did this one day? It doesn't. But the thing is, this doesn't come naturally. And the reason it doesn't come naturally is because we know, you know, we were raised by who we were raised by, and we experienced what we've experienced. And we tend to run to our little corners politically and our little corners relationally in every kind of way. And Jesus is like, my church is going to be so diverse. My church is going to be so international. My church is going to have so many different languages and so many different colors and so many different cultures. If there was any way they could remain one. And then he continues his prayer. Father, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. So that, and here's another kind of purpose clause. Do you know what he prayed for, why he prayed for oneness? This is kind of a shocker. The reason he prayed for oneness really doesn't have anything to do with us. He prayed for oneness because of what he wanted to do through us. The reason I want them to be one is so that the world, not the people in the church, but the people outside the church, the people outside the faith, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Guys, this is mission critical. The way the world is going to sit up and take notice of this beautiful, diverse thing that we call the local church is when the church works together and is unified, even though we might disagree or agree to disagree, even though we've been raised in such different ways that we will never see the world the same way politically. And yet at the same time, there's this beautiful, magical, unusual unity. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, this is the way forward. This is what will eventually get and, and the attention of an empire. This is what will eventually get the attention of the pagan world. There's never been anything like this. You know what he's doing? He was actually asking his heavenly father to come along later and kind of nudge us, to nudge the generation of Christians and the next generation of Christians, to nudge us towards what he had just commanded us to do a few minutes earlier when he was having that Passover meal with his disciples. Because in that conversation, he says to his disciples, I'm giving you a new command. And we talk about this all the time. You should know this. As I have loved you, so you must love one another this was a new command. Understand, this was not a new suggestion. These were our marching orders. It's not just about me. By this, by this kind of unique love for each other, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another as I have loved you. So now Jesus, after he's given this command, he's going, Father, please, please help them to get this right. God, help them if, if this thing expands and grows from Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world, please help them to love each other as different as they're going to be in so many ways. Back to his prayer. He says, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, not political unity, unity in purpose. Unity of a worldview that they would see each other the way I see each of them, that they would see me the way that I'm to be seen, that suddenly this worldview that includes God, that that loves them and a savior that dies for them would be so encapsulating that it would define or redefine everything for them. And then look at what he says then. Again, it's not about you and it's not about me. Then the world will know that you have sent me and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. He He was simply saying, Heavenly Father, you and I know everything rides on their unity, not on their politics, not on culture, not on their language, not on you know, bits and pieces of their worldview, not on how they do baptism or communion or how they sing or don't sing or when they sing or what time of day they meet. We know there is, there is a core that they must be unified around if the world is going to change. And here's the thing. After the resurrection of Jesus, it happened. After the resurrection of Jesus, the apostles went to the streets of the Jerusalem They went with one purpose. Their purpose was to make disciples of all nations. They went with one message. The message was that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the king that has come to reverse the order of things. He's come to bring the kingdom of God to earth. He laid down his life, uh, unlike any other king, he laid down his life for his subjects to create an on-ramp to the Father. And they went with one command, to love each other the way that Jesus had loved them. See, here's the thing, your political candidate will win or lose based on how Americans vote on a Tuesday in November, but the church will win or lose based on your behavior every single day between now and then. And not just the church, the community wins or loses. In some ways, our nation wins or loses based on how we treat each other and love each other and love our world every single day between now and then. That's why I say it so strongly, because Jesus was clear. This isn't an add-on. This isn't a nice-to-have. We must not allow anything or anyone to divide us. Remember this. We're going to talk about this in week three, too. This is so important. It was Christianity. It was these unique kind of upside-down doctrines of Christianity that shaped Western civilization. Almost no one would disagree with that. Even staunch atheists would agree that that it was the message of Christianity that shaped Western civilization. It wasn't American politics or Republicans or Democrats. It was Christianity that shaped Western civilization. It was the teaching of Jesus, not our political parties, that laid the groundwork for our modern sense of justice and fairness and dignity of every single individual. And we've not gotten that right from time to time, and we've certainly got it wrong sometimes. But the hope is not the perfect political party. The hope is the message and the teachings of Jesus because it was Jesus and it was the church that he introduced these values to a new life. So here's the question. Why would we as followers of an eternal king allow ourselves to be divided by temporary political systems and temporary political leaders and temporary political platforms? Why would we allow ourselves to be divided by lesser kings? And here's the most embarrassing thing to me. Why would we allow ourselves to be divided by fear? Jesus' most often repeated command was fear not, fear not. And you know what? So many of us are afraid of this potential, something out there in the future to be afraid of. Let's just pause for a moment and think about the context in which Jesus said, fear not. You've got the temple on one side, right? That can't wait to have you arrested. And on the other side, the empire that's gonna perform the execution. And in the middle of those colossal forces, Jesus and his apostles are there. And he smiles, he says, guys, ignore them, fear not. A king has come, and when the king's people rally around the message of this king, we know extraordinary things can happen because something extraordinary did happen in history. Why would we allow any political view, a view that that you might outgrow, a view that you might abandon? Isn't it true that like every 10 to 15 years or so, your views, your political views in particular, have changed and adjusted, and and, and, you've even abandoned some of them? Why would we run the risk? Why would we allow any strongly held, not or maybe even not so strongly held, political view take take priority over our breathing you? Look, Jesus would say, believe what you want to believe, vote for who you want to vote for, but don't you dare, don't you dare mistreat someone made in my image. Why would we allow a political view to divide us from an actual living, breathing you that Jesus died for? The you beside you, the you that lives next door, the you that, that you work with, or worst of all, Maybe the you that you're related to. Why would we not fight and struggle and sacrifice for the unity that our king prayed for? It it was a unity that got the attention of a pagan world that eventually got the attention of an empire that was responsible for crucifying Jesus and caused it to embrace him. This is God's will for you. This is God's will for us. Every single church should be praying for that kind of unity. So I just want to make two simple suggestions as we close. Would you pray like Jesus prayed? Because most of us have never prayed a prayer like this before. Would you pray for oneness? Would you pray this prayer? It's not the best prayer in the world. It's really short, so you'll remember it. Maybe take a picture so you can remember it later. Heavenly Father, make us one so that we can influence many. Heavenly Father, make us one so we we can influence many. This was the prayer of our Savior, who hours later died. This was the thing he wanted protected more than anything else for his first century followers. The second thing I want you to do is this. I, I want you to look for an opportunity to love unconditionally someone with whom you disagree with politically. You're like, well, I don't even know anybody I disagree with politically. That's a problem, okay? <laughs> like, that's a big problem. That's, that's maybe where you should get things started. And let me push a little bit. Perhaps that's why you haven't learned anything in 15 years, because you're so convinced you're right that you just can't understand. And by saying I can't understand, you just made a confession. You don't know something. I don't know how anybody could behave that way. You just made a confession. There's something you don't know. Now, now, let me close with this. You might be thinking, Jim, you know, that, that's a cool sermon. That's a great idea. I appreciate that. But, but come on, Jim. You have to say things like this because you're the preacher. I mean, that's your job, right? You're just doing your job. You know Jesus said this, and you're going to tell us what Jesus said and kind of wrap it up in a pretty political wrapper, and that's a good idea. But, but come on, Jim. Aren't you just being a little bit naive? To which I would say to you, absolutely not. Let me give you an example of something that's, that's really naive. Let me tell you what Naive actually looks like. Naive is this, a first century rabbi from nowhere, as far away from the epicenter of activity as he could be, way, way, way up north, standing out in the hot Syrian sun with, with his 12 followers, his 12 disciples gathered around them. This is what Naive looks like. He's gathered his disciples, men who were all younger than him, with no political clout and, and, and really nothing to offer anyone. And he says to this group of people, I will build my church. I will build my movement. I will build my gathering. I will build my congregation, which was illegal. And the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not prevail against it. I will build my church. And they're kind of thinking, really? You're going to do that? With us? A bunch of nobodies? That's what naive looks like. And Jesus, this is the amazing thing. After his resurrection, it's what he did. And it's actually what happened. He built his church, and nothing has stopped it since. And if we can can come together, if we can be one again, if we can come together in unity, even love unconditionally, even though we disagree politically, it won't end now. Can we pray the prayer? Can we pursue oneness? Can Can we disagree politically yet love unconditionally? Jesus said, You can. That's our way forward change the world once. and journey, can change the world again. Let me pray for us. Father, Father, I thank you, God, for this incredible passage. God, I know that in this world, God, in this time, things seem so turbulent and we seem so divided and so at odds with each other. But God, the heart of your Son, our Savior, was that we would become one, That we wouldn't allow these politics, we wouldn't allow culture, we wouldn't allow allow a, a political leader, God, we wouldn't allow news or fake news or alt news, whatever it is, God. We wouldn't allow those things to divide us. That we have more that brings us together, we have more in common than we ever do that divides us. And I pray, God, that we would find that. I pray that we would do these two simple things, that we would pray the prayer that was the heart of Jesus, God. That we would pray for oneness. And I pray that we would find somebody that we might disagree with unconditionally, God, that we would have some courage and take a step and find a way to love them, even though we disagree with them. God, and I pray that we might begin to see what Jesus talked about, that we would become one, and that by becoming one, even though there's disagreement, God, to the rest of the world, through our love, through our love for each other, we would bear witness that Jesus was who Jesus was. Your son and our savior. In his precious name I pray, amen. Journey, I love you. I pray you have an amazing week. I pray you enjoy the the nice weather of summer. And I pray you join me back here next week for part two.